Well, welcome to yet another episode of the Delta Flyers. And this week we have one of our guests that we've had in the past multiple times. So we want to yes. thank Lisa Klink for coming and joining us yet again on the Delta Flyers. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for your time. Hey, Lisa. thanks for having me. Great yeah. to see you. Great to yeah. see you. And congrats, first of all, uh, for the fact that the Writers Guild has come to a settlement now. So that is yes. a wonderful thing. How how uh, well-versed are you in all the points of contention that the Writers Guild brought up uh, uh, in their strike? Well-versed. I mean, I looked at the, the memo of the agreement, but I haven't read the whole seven-page thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. And what were the main points of contention? I mean, can you like just brush through those? Like, if, if yeah, I mean, to- a lot of it was courses money. Um, you know, minimum payments, you know, went yeah. up and uh, residuals were another big thing uh, because, of course, yeah. that's what carries us through all that time of unemployment. Right. And with the streamers in particular, we had trouble with residuals because they weren't sharing their data about viewership. Mm. Yep. And so unless you know, you know, how many people are watching something, you can't calculate residuals. That's true. So we worked out a kind of a compromise in which I believe they're going to tell the Writers Guild um about their viewership numbers but not individual members okay. so the writers guild should be able to calculate what we should get yeah yeah i think that that's what i that's what i had read in the in the summary of the deal it was like it was like um all of the amptp streamers agreed that they will share that proprietary data but that it has to be kept super secret and yeah. it's a whole yeah it's a whole thing Somebody at the guild gets this information, but none of the individual writers will get this information. It's not public information. Yeah. Okay. Got it. It's so funny because I heard this great podcast. I forget whose it was about. It was talking about the Nielsen ratings and how Mm. they came about. And it started with radio, although it really exploded with television, but it started with radio and the guy Nielsen out of Chicago, he had been like a failed he had failed at so many businesses and then came up with this idea. He's like, hey, I bet all the people that advertise on radio would love to know, like, how many people are listening to that radio show. And, yeah. and then they'll they'll know if they're overpaying or, or mm-hmm. you know, it'll be valuable information. So he started this idea of, like, Nielsen families where they have a box. Yeah. And they would they would willingly, you know, they'd get paid a little money mm-hmm. to give all this information of what they were watching and check in and how old were the people in the room? Were they mm-hmm. under 18 or all that information? Yeah. And that anyway, the Nielsen ratings were so powerfully profound. Like they really know, were drove the business in so many ways and box office. Like people, I remember those were published numbers, like you could see yeah. in the paper. You know the top one hundred shows, the rankings, the Nielsen rankings, and but my, everybody my, had that. Uh, my issue with the Nielsen ratings this whole time is that it is a select portion. It's a it's a small sampling of people that they hand these boxes out to. It's not a box given to every every TV that's sold in um, the world or America. No, it's you not every saying? TV. Yeah. No, but you can extrapolate. Like you can, you do can you really believe? I mean, okay, yes, if you, I do. Okay. I think that if you have enough sample, a, a big enough sample. Yeah, it's kind of like saying, uh, you know, cigarettes give you cancer. Like, do we need to actually have every person smoke to know no, that? We no, don't. I just like a, an accurate count. Of I know what you mean. What's being watched? That's yeah, all. It probably could have been more precise and probably didn't take in like to account all kinds of variables. That right. It, that, that it let's could. let's say it's ten thousand households. What if those ten thousand households don't like the franchise that we were in? 
All right. You yeah. see what I'm saying? Or yeah. what if those 10,000 that were chosen are all rabid fans of the franchise we were in? Then all yeah. of a sudden now our show is the number one show in the in the country. You know, that's why that's why I don't like that. So it's just well, I still... think that more the concern is, you know, what if all 10,000 people are all white families or what yes. happens? Oh, exactly. All, how, you know, how immigrant families or yes. you know, that's that's more, I think, what my concern would be. Yeah. Yeah. My concern would be the yeah. same. It's the demographics. It's are we mm-hmm. representing culturally the yeah. same? kinds of um um percentages or you know yeah um statistically is it equivalent to the larger the greater population but right. but anyway there's nothing like that with and streamers we really really need it yeah. um, i mean right now we're relying on the streamers to self-report yeah you know, but see that's, that's not fair either ridiculous. though isn't it they can they can still fudge those numbers of they're, course they can. they're saying that trust us we'll tell you how many times it's been watched and that's yeah. them how do you police that? There's nobody policing that. That's I, my I don't issue. understand though how like what if Nielsen could come up with this idea of putting a box on top of a radio or yeah. a TV that you pressed a button and you did right. if they could come up with that idea, why can't they put a box on half a million computers or yeah. a, an app? It doesn't even have to be a physical box. It could be right. like download the Nielsen app and you participate. Yeah. And then all yeah. of your viewing. Yeah. through the streamers is recorded and then the nielsen's are what tell us what just like they used to do in the old you days. should I pitch that idea to nielsen yourself robbie go, it's go, gonna go, the, go make some money out of what you just said that's a great I, idea well i think we should do it as the delta flyers it should be an app <laughs> that we okay, that we come up with yes. that we hand over to nielsen I don't give this okay, to the that's nielsen. true we don't, okay. don't want to give it yeah we have to come up with our own app but don't you anyway, know that we, Netflix knows perfectly well how many people are watching their shows. Oh, oh heck yeah. You know, like Amazon they, Prime. I mean, they they know. They know yeah. every number. They know yeah. all of it. Yeah. Mm. Okay, other points of contention. Um, another point of contention that I'm really happy about for TV writers is that they now have a minimum size uh, writing room. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, because especially with the streamers, the number of orders have really been shrinking. And so, you know, we used to do 26 episodes a season. Now they yeah. do eight or 10. Right. And what they'll do is they'll have like, you know, two or three writers in a mini writer's room. They'll write all the episodes and then the writers will go home mm-hmm. and then they'll get into production. And that's, you know, obviously that's really reducing the number of jobs that are just available to writers. Sure. Yeah. And so now they have minimums that, you know, if an episode, if a series has like six episodes, they need to have three writers and 10 okay. episodes, they need to have five writers, that kind of thing. Okay. Got it. And I think that's really necessary. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes it more fair, right? I mean, it's they were taking advantage of the system beforehand. They so, were. And yes. I mean, what we didn't win, what what is still a concern is that the writers don't have any production experience. They don't get to stay through production. You know, they oh. don't go to go to production meetings, they don't go to the set, they don't go to casting, nothing like that. They they're not allowed to? Is is that what you're saying? What do you Pretty mean? Pretty much. They, okay. <laughs> I mean, they, well, they certainly are not still employed in able to be able to do so. Oh. Yeah, what we did on the show that I work on, because the the writing staff was all wrapped, yeah, pretty much by the time we started the first filming the first episode. Wow. So we saved some money in the writer's budget, saved some weeks in there to bring up the more junior writers. Um, Even if they weren't actively producing, they were um, on set for at least, I think, we wanted to give them at least two weeks of, of production time and didn't always, didn't always line up with a production meeting and filming. Sometimes they'd come day two of filming. Sometimes they come 
you know, a couple days because we tried to do it Monday through Friday for a two week span, but we did try to get them up, but that was all us. That was all us trying to be creative to make sure that these writers were participating in the production and learning how to produce on set, how to talk with directors, how to give notes, how to let go of some ideas and kind of go (laughs) with what's happening and all of that. It's yeah, there's a lot to learn there. So. And, and it's crucial because these are the people who are going to be running shows. Yeah. You know, in what five, 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So right now we're not training anybody to to be able to do that. Right. Yeah. It it reminds me of that sci-fi show that we all worked on together. Yes. Um, the space show. Um, because you were currently employed all pretty much all through all year. Uh, all year. We had like three weeks off a year. Yeah. Yeah. So you were able to come to set, even though yeah. I don't think that particular show at that time it didn't encourage writers on set like no. the bo- the bosses there did not encourage participation it was sort of deliver the pages and mm-hmm. and wait until the cut mm-hmm. comes in to mm-hmm. be angry um but, but we did go to production <laughs> meetings and we went yes, to cafe that's true that's um, true and we were you know allowed to go down to set i mean they didn't actually chase us out Right. No, I loved when yeah. you guys. We all yeah, it was loved nice. when, when you, you guys, guys came, came down. down. We were we were happy oh, to see you. We were so like, happy. They're here, <laughs> the writers. You, oh, yeah, God. the the resource of having the brains that were in the rooms when all those different possibilities were were um, you know debated and, and decided on. Because sometimes on set you'll you'll go, oh, I know. Uh, the great solution is that. He should be screaming this in this moment because it's the angry thing. And then if the writer's there, the writer can say, oh, you know what? It's not on the page, but we did talk about that. And we really don't want to do the screaming thing that was debated and discussed. We want to do this, you know. So there's some things that aren't crystal clear in -hmm. the writing as hard as writers work to make it crystal clear. Yeah, that having that writer's brain, the the experience of being in through the process of of all the ideas being debated and some ideas being discarded, uh, it helps a lot. It's more efficient to get so. the job done faster oh, too, because yeah, you yeah, know yeah. what you what they want. Oh yeah, for sure. Totally. All right. Any other um other things noteworthy wise? Uh, well, of- another big thing that is I think just even more important for the actors is the AI situation. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. How does that affect the writers? The AI situation. Well, what we're concerned that the studios are going to do is use an AI, you know, Chat GPT or whatever the new yeah. thing is, to generate you know the crappy version of a script. Gotcha. You know, the, the bad first draft. Yeah. And then they'll hire an actual human writer to come in and rewrite it. Yeah. Uh, you know, from page one, and they'll mm-hmm. only have to pay them the rewrite rate. Right. Because it's supposedly it's already existing material. Right. And then also the studio will be the author of that material. They'll have the copyright, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, as opposed to a spec that is actually generated by a human writer. Okay. So, so- that that's what we're really afraid of, is that they're gonna try and basically do as much of the of the writing you know or what they consider writing on their end of it well did you guys argue for the rewrite to be paid higher to be paid more you know what i'm saying in well, case I they think do- that what we came to is that for for screenplays the writer does get first pass at, at the at the rewrite okay so uh, like if i sold a, a, a spec tomorrow i would be contractually obligated to do the first rewrite okay mm-hmm. um 
more specifically than that, I I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of talk about, you know, they'll have to consult the writer and they'll have to, you know, make things clear to the writer and inform them and all that. But Mm -hmm. whether that means that they can go ahead and do it anyway, I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. But I think the language that the the WGA got in the in this agreement, the language that a script is written by a human. Yes. And a writer is a human. Yes. Um that is critical language. It's funny because the Directors Guild, which I've been much more a part of uh longer, the Directors Guild had some language going way back um that described a director as uh, a human person. Mm-hmm. And it was before AI, but <laughs> but it was just legal language because the the DGA was always concerned about in the similar way that writers are concerned about what a writer is, defining what a writer is, mm-hmm. and and who has ownership of that script. Um, director, the DGA was concerned about directors defining what is a director. A director mm-hmm. is one person, one human person, as I think what the contracts reads. Yeah. Uh, a, taking the responsibility of director in that. So when I'm producing a a show, I can't go on and direct the show. I can't even tell the director how to direct the show. I can give notes. I can ask. I can, my only two options are either let the director direct and interpret my notes, however they want and everyone else's notes or fire that director. That's it. I don't have the option to say, nope, stop reblock it a different way, have them come in that door and shoot it from here. I can't do that because there's only one human director. So they had the language in there. So the DGA actually had that language that you can't have AI direct. So it was not necessary for the DGA to specifically call out AI quite in quite the same way that the writers needed to, because they already had that language directors, one human person. Well, one thing that they did accomplish is they they define the showrunner as the head writer, mm. um, as opposed to you know some studio executive could declare themselves the showrunner. Yeah. Um, but they they now are defining that as the head writer and in yeah. okay. fact a human person. Yeah. So yeah. that's which all is good. how it was in the old days, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Sort of. I mean, it's interesting. That's a debatable fact because <laughs> showrunners were often producers they weren't directors they weren't writers they were producers and they Mm -hmm. ran the show and they told the writers do this do that they told the director do this do that and directors and writers often were um very much um micromanaged by the showrunner who was Mm -hmm. neither a writer or a director um in the old days if you look at like the the dick van dyke show you know that there's there's a great there's a great example of the old days there was i forget the producer's name but then there was the writing staff um and and what has evolved is because the the head writer or creator of a show is often got the vision it's their idea it's their vision they hear the voices in their head they know the the style and tone so it makes sense that the the creator slash you know head writer or whatever is the showrunner, mm-hmm. but that wasn't always the case. But the the WGA has taken a very active kind of developmental role in making sure that showrunner is is that visionary sort of writer in charge of the script, all those things. They have a showrunner training program at the WGA. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of. Um, yeah, that's that's and and you're right, Lisa. That's a big step forward because, you know, the old the old studios didn't want writers or directors having much power or actors. No. 
No. Lisa, did you know that Robbie got a writing credit on that show that he produced up in Vancouver? So I did is, not know that. Yeah. So he more than a writing are you, credit. Are you, are you WGA? Now? Robbie I've got my WGA he card. card. He's a card carrying member. He's a card carrying member of now. another union I get to pay dues to. <laughs> <laughs> so exciting. Yeah. He got a little little help there. And are, are you still in SAG? I am yeah, still in you? SAG. Yeah. I'm still I was in AFTRA before they combined. So I yeah. was I was in SAG. Well, first I got in equity, actors equity, the state right. union. Then I got in AFTRA. Then I got in SAG. Then the WGA, I'm sorry, then no, the DGA, DGA. DGA. Then I, I also belong to the UBCP, which is the Canadian actor, the Union but. of British Columbia act, <laughs> Actors, UBCP, and now the Writers Guild. I think that's Man. it, six union. That's enough. Look at you. You're <laughs> all gilded guild. out, Robbie. But what'd you say? I know, sorry. The, produ- the Producers Guild is just like a social oh, club, though. They okay. don't really do much of anything. PGA. Yeah. I was asked to join a couple times, but I'm like, why do I want to spend thousands of more dollars on a social club? I don't even live in LA. So <laughs> yeah. All right. Any other final notes regarding the strength on, on the strike writer side? Yeah. Um personally, it was a pretty positive experience, I gotta say, being out on the yeah. lines. Great. Um, because you know, working by myself at home, I don't have a lot of interaction with other writers at the moment. <laughs> And yeah. so getting out there and actually being able to talk to people and and meet people, yeah. uh, especially at the themed pickets. You know, we had we've had two Star Trek themed pickets. Uh, nice. We've had two that were about women in genre. Um, oh, and so wow. I got to meet a lot of other women who write sci-fi and fantasy and oh, whose so work cool. I admired, but I'd never actually met. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it actually was a pretty positive strike. That's awesome. I think it was great for the whole community, the the writing yeah. and acting community and directors, although, you know, the directors, obviously they, they made a deal early on. And then um, it's funny. I was always thinking back when this first started, I was like, why don't they all just go out together? Like, why don't the yeah. directors and everybody, why don't but, we all stand the together at the same time? Yeah. The directors have made a good deal. Like, like they actually... When I looked at the same sort of back in in May, I guess I looked at the the bullet points of all the DGA issues, and they got a lot of they made a lot of progress. It's an excellent deal. It's the same yeah. rate increases that the Writers Guild got. It's all kinds of safety issues, which the DGA is very uh, on top of. You know, um, weapon safety, uh, yeah. all kinds of diversity and inclusion issues. I think the DGA has really been um strong in that area but um, it is sad that there's no unity though robbie it's like every union is out for themselves it's like the dga we're gonna deal with our own stuff the actors if everyone got together like you just mentioned you you thought about that the past why can't we have solidarity and unity across the board just one big union called the creative coalition of hollywood (laughs) or something and it's and then each the cch i like yeah or something and then each of the individual specialists can be in charge of their director side or their writing side or their accent, but they all it's all or none. You want the creative people involved in, in, in your TV and filmmaking, your streamers, all of them. Then you got to work with us. I think that would be great. There you go. Although the the actors have really been there for us. I got to say that there were a lot of actors out on the picket lines, even before SAG went on strike. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for the writers and the directors as well. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk into a little bit about your upbringing and where you're from. I know only one fact about you. You're born in Maryland, correct? 
Uh, oh, I lived in Maryland. When lived I was in Maryland. Living. Oh, so that's incorrect. Where were you so, born? Yeah, where were you Washington, born? Washington, D.C. Oh, DC. In D.C., what hospital? George Washington Hospital. Oh, I wonder where my sister was born. My, my sister was born in Washington, D.C. Oh, oh, yeah. Really? Robbie, you didn't tell me. I wonder me. if you were born at the same hospital. Yeah, 1971, she was born. 71, not too, not, that's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty close. Uh, but then you were born in the, t- the hospital in D.C., but you were raised in Potomac then or another part uh, of Well, we actually moved around a lot. So we lived in Maryland for a little while, but then we moved out to San Francisco um, lived there for a few years and then moved down to Woodland Hills wow. uh, here in L.A. and then to South Pasadena in L.A. Oh, I love uh, South and Pasadena. then back to Potomac, Maryland, which okay. is where, where I went to high school. So that's where I kind of consider that I'm from. Same here. I moved I moved around a ton until just before like seventh or eighth grade. And then we settled in Atlanta. So I think of Atlanta as home, even though yeah. we lived in D.C. and Gaithersburg, Maryland and North Carolina and Philadelphia and all these places. But yeah. so all the destinations that you were in California were before your high school years. Yes. Is that correct? OK. Yes. So Potomac is where you landed for ninth grade or 10th. Uh, actually, what? I think sixth grade, sixth grade. So even before yeah, high so school, even before middle school. school there. OK. Junior high and high school in Potomac, Maryland. Mm-hmm. I have a question, Lisa. So you moved around. You're in middle school. You're back in Maryland. Did you ever, did you get into this through acting? I've never asked you that. Did you, did theater, you do like yes. theater? Pl- did you do plays? Yeah. Uh, and, I and did. Sco- did you? Uh, I did. Did you plays. Uh, not, not very prominently though. It's like, I wasn't oh. the lead in all the plays or anything. I usually was right. like background people or something. Yeah. Um, And I kind of got, got into the behind the scenes stuff. Like, the crew and building sets and things yeah. like that. Lighting. lighting yeah. Yeah. That, that kind of yeah. stuff. Okay. How Stage managing, whatever that kind of, What yeah, was your favorite the... role yeah, that you, you like played uh, when you were, when you were acting? Well, I had a lot of fun. We did Anne of Green Gables mm-hmm. one year and I was Miss Stacy, the teacher. Mm. Um, and I got to sing, you know, a solo and, all of that, which was, God. you know, terrifying, but fun. That's amazing. I never knew this. I don't know why it just occurred to me to ask you about that, <laughs> but that's great. amazing. She had a solo. <laughs> Woo. I did. Oh okay. Who was your teacher when you did all of this? Was that someone that, who was it? And did they inspire you in some way? Like, is, do you think that's part of why you pursued writing and screenplays and things? You know, sadly enough, I do not remember who my teacher was. Oh, uh, so yeah, okay. I, but, I, and it didn't really set me on the on the Hollywood path. Okay, no. Um, well, I, let me ask it, you this: something I did for fun, right? Yeah. When you were in high school or or middle school and then high school, what did you think at that point in time your occupation would be? Like, were you thinking I'm going to be a fill in the blank at that point? Well, I knew that I liked writing, you know, and I and I knew that I was probably going to be an English major in college. Okay, and so I thought maybe go to law school. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, or maybe end up teaching, uh, yeah. maybe journalism. Mm-hmm. There were there were a couple right. different things that I looked at, but nothing, nothing was really quite the right fit. Right. But then the time, the point that you think you were bitten by the bug, or at least what 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 was it that put you on the path towards Hollywood? Like what was the well, it was, it was one specific uh guest appearance in my film theory class. Um, um Michael we didn't have a big film department. I mean, there was nothing about production or anything like that. They just had a film theory class. Right. So uh-huh. I took that and it was interesting. And they had a producer come out from Hollywood. Uh, it was the producer, Tom Mount. 
um, who I wasn't familiar with and still am not really, but he brought his latest film to screen for us, um, Frankenstein Unbound. <laughs> okay. Dreadful movie. Oh my God, it was terrible. <laughs> but, but still he came and he talked to us. And that was Love the it. first time that it kind of registered with me that people did this for a living. Yeah, this is a real job. Okay. This was a yeah. real, actual, honest to God job. Yeah. That like a grown-up could do. Okay. And seriously, that's when it dawned on me that this is something I could do. Right. And so I decided I was going to become a director. Oh. Ah. Interesting. Yep. At that point, a film okay. director, yes, film or film TV. Director. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because um, you felt that you could do a way, way better job than whoever directed that Frankenstein Unbound. <laughs> Frankenstein Unbound. <laughs> well, that was true. But at, at the time, I was really, um, James Cameron uh, was really big. You know, Terminator 2 had come out. Yes. This, and yeah. I really, really loved his work. I was like, I want to do that. Yeah, awesome. I want to go play in that sandbox right there. Yeah. So that's, that that's that was great pretty much what drove me out to Los Angeles is that wow. I wanted to go and become the next James Cameron. Wow. We didn't even and talk did about you any take, of this before. This did you take show. classes, like directing, film directing, film TV classes? Did uh, you... I didn't. I did the next best thing. I worked for a director. Yes. Oh. Uh, I worked and for who... Bigelow, actually. Oh, you did? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was her development assistant. Wow, that, oh. that is the next best thing then. Yeah. What years were you there with Catherine? With Catherine. It must yeah. have, well, it was when the Northridge quake hit. Okay. Uh, I was working with her then. 94. You said, her house got damaged. You said Strange Days? Is that what you yeah. brought up? That project? <laughs> Do you know I read for that? Did you really? <laughs> yes. That's funny. Do you know that I had a callback for that? Role? Wow. And so you met Catherine? I, well, let's just put it this way. It was for a black market tech dealer guy right so i yeah. thought i'm gonna have to be i thought i gotta be a little shady you know for my callback so i felt like i had to be i had to alter my state of consciousness so i was not even sober at that when i went into that audition because <laughs> i thought that's what it called for yeah. and i remember i remember i was so out of it i got it i rear-ended someone on the way to the audition oh my god garrett yep. Uh, once I got to the audition, it's called acting. After, well, Robbie, after I got to the audition and did the audition with, I think it was Catherine that was there. And I don't, you know, I, I said, okay, well, thanks. And I turned around to walk out. I walked into the wall instead of the actual doorway. So that was, that was my one time I realized I can't be like, there's certain actors that can drink a fifth of vodka and they're amazing actors, you know, but I, I can't be that actor. I have to stay completely sober and not, you yeah. know, be messed up in the audition because I thought he's really black market. He's from the underground. He's got to be totally kind of like a, a tweaker. That's what I thought, yeah. you know, and so I and I totally screwed up my own, my own audition. <laughs> Oh, that's so wow. weird that's yeah. crazy yeah wow okay so question when you came over to that sci-fi show that we met you on we all worked on yeah. did you talk to them about this directing thing like did you say well by that time i wasn't really after directing anymore mm. because when i worked with Catherine, I, I got to go to the set and and watch her shooting some strange days yeah and yeah. i realized that no i do not want to do this <laughs> okay. 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 But, but how did you get that job to begin with, though? Was that from a friend of a, a connection? Well, I started um, interning, which is, you know, working for free, reading scripts. <laughs> okay. And then when she hired, you know, a development assistant who actually got paid, she hired me. Okay. So you were reading scripts for her production company for as an intern to begin with. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yes. And you were and, doing and was, your job. And talk about an education. I was reading yeah. all of these scripts from like all the major agencies. Yeah. And most of them were terrible. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Just and I found this really encouraging. You, 
So this, <laughs> that, like, I could write something that bad. Yeah. Did, <laughs> did you do like official coverage on that? Did you? Yes. Okay. So, because okay. I took a class uh, on coverage at AFI. Robbie, explain that to people what that means, coverage. Well, coverage is basically what Lisa did. She read the scripts and then she would give a summary and there's kind of formats for it. Some people just write coverage in their own format, but the when I took this class at AFI, um, it was a brief overview of doing coverage because I was trying to learn how to look at scripts myself um, in a different way. It, right. it was more uh, kind of as a as an actor and also as a um, wanting to find projects to develop for myself as a director. So I was looking looking for some structure on how to do coverage but um yeah you kind of break it down you break down the plot and and the characters and then how it's you give an opinion on how it's executed and uh, you give a kind of you know um, pass a rec- fail basically, pass fail, right. basically. This, this is recommend your, this or is, no yeah this is worth your time to continue to look at or not to yes. look at right yes so, yeah yeah okay and so you when you got that job how many when you were interning how many scripts were you reading per week or per day like what oh, was it Lord. what was um, it at every day probably at least four or five. Oh wow <laughs> you imagine that robbie that's your no. job four or five no. scripts a day that you're <laughs> no. reading through oh my god how many interns were there doing this besides you at the time though? well when i was initially interning i think there were two of us yeah but then when i became the development assistant i believe it was just me okay and it was just you doing that yeah. But I mean, talk about grad school. I mean, I got to read and analyze yeah. hundreds and hundreds of screenplays. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. yeah. With Catherine Bigelow, too. That's With another, Catherine Bigelow, yeah. who got all the best stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. So you saw everything, which is I amazing. saw everything. That was a real education. You couldn't have even oh, cool. paid for oh, that. Absolutely. Uh, am I right? I mean, it, it was more valuable than getting any type of graduate degree at any film school. <laughs> for you being right there next to Catherine Bigelow and then plucked out of internship into paid assistant yep. job, which is fabulous. Yeah. How long did you spend doing that for? How many years was that? Um, I probably spent about a year and a half with her. Okay. And during that time is when I decided that I was going to write. Oh, uh, and so wow. I was working on my own stuff and I was working on a screenplay and I wrote a couple of really bad screenplays, yeah. uh, you know, action screenplays, which were just terrible. <laughs> um, but then I actually went to a convention where they were talking about, um, you know, how to submit to a certain franchise mm-hmm. and then uh-huh. they would read any script that you sent in. And I was right. like, I can do that. Yeah. So I wrote a script and I sent it in. And that's what kind of got me in thinking television. I could do that. I love right. television. I especially yeah. like sci-fi. I could do that. Right. And that's that's literally how I got my foot in the door. Wow. You know, it's so interesting because Bigelow was so important in your life because yes. Bigelow was the was the point in your life you realized you did not want to be a film director. You yes. saw what it was like on set with uh, assisting her. And then after reading script after script and a lot of them very substandard quality scripts, you realize, hey, I could probably throw my lot into this into yep. this uh, game. And that's how your career started. That's really interesting. Wow. So what does this say, ladies and gentlemen, and other people out there, other orientation people? This means that interned, interning or having an internship can lead to great, great things, especially yes, in Hollywood. You have, to, you have to be able and willing to work for free for a while. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Most interns are not that. paid. That's right. So you, you yeah. have to be able to afford to not get paid for a while. And that's right. that's a big stumbling block. That's a big people. stumbling block. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that's tough. Because you got to build um, up savings. I have a question for you. Like, so you were working, you got this amazing job, which was in the industry. 
mm-hmm. um, with Catherine Bigelow. And while you were doing that job, you were working on your own creative projects, writing and things on the side. How do you balance? Like for me, there's sort of um, structural discipline to my day. If I'm if I'm trying to be efficient and productive, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a structure. Like here's my my schedule, my calendar. Here's how I'm spending my time. Time management. There's a time management thread, and then yeah. there's kind of a creative thread. How do you balance that when you? Because a lot of people that listen to our show, like they have day jobs, but they want to be yeah. creative. Like how did you balance? Uh, your day job and being creative and make and being productive like that. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately, I wasn't very closely supervised. Uh, I mean, again, my boss was off directing and you know was really consumed with that, and so I basically yeah. sat in an office by myself, so I could create my own schedule. And right. what I would do is I'd spend the first two hours of the day, you know, when I got in, you know, I get there at nine o'clock and I'd spend till eleven writing on my own stuff. Right. Um, and then I'd spend the rest of the day uh, doing coverage. Right. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, if you if you are able to manage your time and get your job done responsibly, your day job mm-hmm. done responsibly in less than the time allotted, then to spend some of the time on your own thing makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, uh, I was really lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask a little bit about your creative process in terms of when you decide to write about something? Uh, is it something that you're out and about and you see something or you see an interaction or you read about something and you're thinking, hey, this would be a this would be a great idea to sort of extrapolate and get a little bit into it, you know, pull it out into something bigger and better. Like how does how do you do that as a writer just to get your creative process? Uh, well, I'm a big outliner. Okay. Um, and certainly TV, you know, uh, working for TV really promotes that because you absolutely have to do an outline. And, and but that suited me pretty well. I mean, I'm you know, I still work with like, you know, uh, index cards that I, you know, tape up on my, on my wall, um, you know, move around scenes and stuff like that. So these days, like if I get an idea, first I have to figure out where I want to put it. Does it seem like a movie? Does it seem like a series? Um, I mean, right now I'm writing a graphic novel, uh, you know, I've written some short stories. So I kind of have to see what, what scale it kind of feels like to me. Right. Um, and then, you know, kind of fit it into that format. You know, okay. is it going to be a pilot script? Is it going to be, you know, three act structure, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, and then I outline the whole thing before I start writing. Do you use specific writing software when you write? I, I use Final Draft. Final Draft. Would yeah. you say that is the main program that most writers use in Hollywood? It is. And that's actually why I use it, because, um, you know, like I I wrote a couple episodes for the TV show Pandora Mm -hmm. and they used Final Draft. And so, you know, if I'm sending them files and stuff, I had to send them with that program. Gotcha. It just makes more sense. What did you use back uh, on that sci-fi show that we worked on? Because Final Draft might have been around. I don't think it was. I I think it was like a. It was around then, guys. I know it was around. It was, but it was very early. It was definitely back then. It was definitely not the standard. Like there were three or four or five different ways that people wrote programs. People used, and some people just used a template on. Like Microsoft Word. I think that's what we did. I think so too. Yeah. I think that's what Brandon did. 
But I know the final draft has been around for a long time, for sure. But it wasn't. It wasn't. I don't think it was like, around huge in the '90s. I thought it was that everyone used it in the '90s too. It was up and coming, but I don't think it was a lot of templates on Microsoft Word because, yeah. just yeah. like Lisa said, yeah. you had to be able to share that file with the whole right. staff yeah. and with your script coordinator and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. And so it had to be a file that everyone could deal with. And if it yeah. was, if somebody was working on final draft and somebody else was working on word perfect, or I don't know, you know, whatever the yeah. other ones were, right. Um, you'd have all these different files that w- couldn't talk to each that other. That weren't compatible. So, yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Well, final draft is it now. If it wasn't, yes. if it wasn't it back in the nineties, it is the end all be all yeah. for the most yeah. part. Yes, it is. Right? Okay. What do you think about, I, I have a creative process Go. question. Yes. What are your thoughts on collaboration versus independent work? Good question. I like both. Um, I mean, I really enjoy the writer's room of television. Uh, I mean, assuming that you're working with good people, you know, it's not one of those toxic environments that you, you know, read about and burn it down. But uh, if it's a good, positive environment, the way it was when I was on the franchise show, um, it was really positive. It was so much fun. Yeah. It was just like, you know, bouncing around ideas and, ooh, well, how about this? And, oh, and then we could do it that way. And then this other thing. Yeah. And that it was a blast. Um, so that, it sounded, that's that sounds fun work. to me, actually. A lot it of is. fun, right? It's totally yeah. fun. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, obviously when I wasn't working on a show, I would be, you know, working by myself. Yeah. But I actually have a writing partner that I do work with sometimes. And we're, we're both writing the graphic novel together. Okay. So how does that yeah. work then? When you have a writing partner, do you guys say, I'll take this this uh, block of scenes, you take this block of scenes? Or do you go both work yeah. on the same scenes? No, we, we, we broke it down together, you know, okay. we, we down into, you know, an outline. Yep. And then, yeah, it'd be like, okay, you take, you know, this sequence, and then yep. I'll take this sequence, and gotcha. then we kind of swap it and give each other notes. Nice. And, you know, kind of meld it into one voice. Yeah. And that works pretty well, too. It does with with this writing partner that I'm working with. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it has to be the right person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've I've known him for like 20 years, oh, and and he's it's... one of my best friends, and so we really we really function well as a writing team. Did he that's write great. on the franchise that we all worked on? Did he? Uh, no, but okay. uh, that's when we met. Oh, you oh, met, you met around that. the same time. Oh, yeah. Okay. Cool. Fabulous. Yeah. This uh, this episode that I wrote on this other show, this show I did last this last year, I co-wrote it with the creator of the show. And so we did the whole, you know, the room broke the episode and was part of that. And then he and I went through and sort of wrote the outline collaboratively, very much kind of, we both worked on outline points, put it in our words and then combined our documents a bit Mm -hmm. worked very. And then uh, he said, I'm going to take the first three acts and you take the last three acts. I'll talk to you in a week or two. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah. so we sort of did our separate work and then we traded documents mm-hmm. and then we worked, you know, uh, uh, I, I polished and made changes and then we started sort of putting it into collaboration, but there was a point where he had three acts and he was working very independently and I had three acts and I was working very independently. How was that? I, it was great. I love the process. He's a very experienced showrunner. Chris Sheridan is his name. Um, he's written on a ton of comedies and t- lots and lots of shows. And he's very good at um, making the process pleasant and fun and creative, yeah. you know, and and uh, positive feedback. And so and making it feel safe. 
So it the, was the great. Showrunners yeah. do that. Yeah, they really make you yeah. feel like you can you can volunteer a really stupid idea, and you're not going to get like made fun of or, or laughed at about it. You know, that it's okay. Well, that right. doesn't work. Let's think of something else. Yeah. You know, and and you yeah, you can feel safe. Yeah. Yeah, he's very good at that. I've I've worked on I haven't written obviously nearly as much as you. It's that was not my main job, but I've I've written some other development things that I've sold with some other writers and things like that. Anyway, my point is I've also been in writing rooms like comedy rooms Ooh, talking yeah. about like dramas are so much easier and tend to be much more supportive. Yeah. Comedy rooms like the writing room in a comedy, it is cutthroat. Yeah. Like talk about not feeling safe. Oh. Yeah. The, wow. you know, trying to beat everybody's joke and, oh, that's, that's, that's your joke. Oh yeah. Well, what about, you that's know, they're very just competitive. like, it's very, it's very I, competitive. I don't know if I like that. Yeah. yeah it oh. can be very, it can be very cutthroat. Lisa, have you been keeping up to date with uh, Delta Flyer episodes? Have you been hearing them? Yes, I have. Okay, so oh, good. I just want to say I'm so proud of Robbie because in our season eight uh, storylines that he came up with, this was, I was very impressed. I really was. I was <laughs> yeah, like, no, that was good stuff. God, he came up with some awesome storylines that would have been oh, super funny. cool. And it just shows to show you this could be a career that you could uh, segue to. You don't have yeah, to direct anymore. I'm, I'm heading to retirement. No, thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> all right fine but i like the collaboration i i i that's why i asked the question because as a actor and then as a director there's so much collaboration yeah the, the, in both of those jobs whereas writing for me was always a struggle even before you know years ago uh, because it's it was so independent for me yeah and i just found that to be tough to motivate myself to I like bouncing ideas. I like working with actors as a director and mm -hmm. having their best ideas, you know, on the day. And yeah. oh, how can we, how can we make that work? And how can I put that in my plan? And, you know, yeah. Yeah. I have one last question for you yeah. before we let you go. What was your role in your family growing up? How would you describe yeah. your role? There you go. Uh, well, I was an only child. Uh-huh. And so I was kind of like a little adult. Huh. Um you know, I would always be, you know, sitting in the dining room with the, with, you know, the the adults. Uh -huh. and my parents had friends over. You know, that would I would go and hang out with them. Yeah. Um. So I was, you know, one of those eternally forty year old kids. You were mature beyond so, your years. So <laughs> if 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 you were at a like a family, you know, holiday function or something, and there were a lot of other kids there, you would tend to gravitate towards the adult table and not the kids. More often, table. yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I asked that because I just wonder how do you think that translated your role in your family translated into your role as a writer? Like, well, I think being an only child really had more to do with it because yeah. I you know had to entertain myself. Yeah, you had to create um, your own world. So I would read a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, watch TV and watch movies, and then even when I would hang out with my friends, we would make up stories together. Right. Um, you know, we write plays together and yeah. wrote a version of Little Women, if I recall, oh, and wow. uh, performed it for our enchanted neighborhood or families. Yes. Of course. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. It was the greatest play ever written. Yes. Sure. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I think basically being on my own and kind of living in my own yeah. head, you know, led me more toward writing. I wonder if they did a, a survey on that. Writers that were only children and mm. you know, raised as without any siblings is that the you know the fact that pushed them into writing who knows wouldn't surprise me yeah wouldn't yeah. surprise me either
All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today no, sure. on the Delta yeah. Flyers. And uh, for all of you Patreon patrons, please stay tuned. We still have more Lisa Klink with us. We're going to answer some more questions with her. So uh, stay tuned, Patreon patrons. For the rest of you, we will see you next week. Thank you. Mm-hmm.